Okay. Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Tuesday, December 7th, 2010, and welcome to the Future of Education. Our guest tonight is Karen Egan. Karen, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. You get some clapping already. So the book that we'll, there are, you've written many books, but we will talk uh, tonight a lot about the future of education because, of course, the great connection with the title of this interview series. The Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, now Blackboard Collaborate. The project I work on is called Learn Central. It's a social network for educators with Illuminate baked in. We hope you'll come and uh, give it a try. It is free. The use of Illuminate and the social network are free for you to enjoy. Uh, the Future of Education has been nominated for an EduBlog Award for the best webinar series. Now, this is kind of a funny award series. I happen to be the co-host of this series this year, so I can't really ask you for your vote, but it is a vote tally program, and so if you're so inclined, there's a link there for you to vote. There, uh, I think I saw Connie Weber is in the audience, and she's been nominated for her Fireside Learning Network. Peggy George is in the audience, and she's been nominated for her Classroom 2.0 Live series. Um, there are a large number of really great sites. Lots of fun to go to the website and look at and see who's been nominated. And then do vote, because those votes are what determine the ultimate winners. Coming up uh, Thursday, Julie Young on her uh, Florida Virtual School. Uh, that should be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to having Julie on the show. On the 14th, Deborah Meyer comes on, and on the 16th, Alfie Cohn. That will be a heavy reading week. Uh, Karen Cater looks like she will be on on December 21st, and that may be early in the day, but she will talk about the, the U.S. National EdTech Plan. Uh, and then in January, some fun guests, uh, as you can see there on the schedule. If you've missed a Future of Education interview, they are all recorded. That list just keeps getting longer, and it's so much fun to look at. So many interesting perspectives and points of view that will be put in some context today, I think. Um, but if you have missed the show, they are all recorded and they're available for you to watch, either in full Illuminate version or in a podcast form. If this is your first time in Illuminate, we hope that you will participate. It is a participative environment. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is to go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. That will let you see the chat just a little bit better. Uh, you can use the emoticons at the bottom of the participant window, the smiling face, the clapping hand, confused look, or thumbs down. Uh, you can also use that hand with the green up arrow when we go to Q&A. That's how you would raise your hand to take the microphone. If you do think you'd like to take the microphone, be sure to go to Tools Audio, run the Audio Setup Wizard to test your microphone. You can do it on the fly, but if we don't hear you, then we have to move on to the next question. Um, we're going to now use the whiteboard, so I'm going to give you whiteboard permissions. Look to the left of the map for a wand with a red star at the end. That indicates uh, that's the laser pointer tool. And as you click on that, you can click on the map, and it will let us show where you're listening from. And uh, we should see some Canada because of Karen. It looks like Ireland, uh, a couple in Australia. Southeast Asia. Please feel free to shout out in the chat as well. I have to admit a sense of a tie here, of course. Uh, Hargadon is an Irish name. There were many Hargadons who actually emigrated to Canada, and a sizable population of them there. And a story I don't think I've told, but uh, I did this June get to go to Ireland as part of a, a trip to Europe, and I found the Hargadon family farm outside of Sligo which was a lot of fun Gosh. for me. Yes, living relatives, no less. Uh, great thrill. Okay, so wherever you're listening from, we sure appreciate your being here. And uh, Karen, we're really glad to have you here. I'm going to turn my camera off because I have a cold and you do not need to see me tonight. And, and you can watch Karen. Um, I will tell you that of the many books I've read on education this year, this one was particularly challenging to me. And I think because you, you're requiring me to rethink a lot of the conceptions that I've had around how to talk about the future of education. So I'm, I'm hoping that you can give us, in the context of an hour, 
an overview of the kinds of things you're working on and you're thinking about um, help clarify my understanding of those principles and as well be communicating uh, this, what I think is a very unique and valuable message uh, about talking about education. So I loved the story about the absurd scenario of movie watching and testing. Could you tell that and could we kind of start with that as a platform for launching? Yes. Um, <laughs> the idea was that, uh, to suggest that imagining, a, you know, in the near future when, for example, the government, whatever government you have, decides that uh, in the future the, the way in which money is to be distributed among the population uh, has to be changed because currently it's very unjust. So that what the government's going to require in the future is that uh, everybody has to go to the cinema once a week. And you go watch a movie, and then instead of coming out and talking about it in Starbucks to your friends later, you have to uh, go to the foyer of the cinema in which um, um, just, uh, um, sorry, it's simply here, um, that instead of, you'll find a lot of small tables. Uh, one of the tables will have your name on it, and you'll find there's a, a multiple choice test about the movie you've just seen. And there'll be things like, you know, what was the name of the heroine's dog in the third chase scene? You know, was it uh, Fido, whatever. Uh, what was the color of the villain's car? Uh, now, depending on how well you do on this test, uh, your salary is going to be determined for next week. Uh, and then the following week, you go back to the cinema. Everybody has an evening. They go to the cinema. You watch another movie. You have another multiple choice test. And depending on how well you do on the test, your salary is determined for the following week. So that's how we're going to do it in future. Um, in, in, in the future, everybody's salary will be determined by how well they do on a multiple choice test after watching a movie. Now, this seems like an entirely ludicrous scenario in that uh, at one level, um, it seems to decouple work from the value of the work done to the society, and it seems sort of arbitrary. It also destroys the pleasure of watching a movie. So the, the question then is, what does this remind you of? And the answer is supposed to be, well, it's supposed to remind you of school. That is, what we do in school is we give, we, we determine students' life chances on the basis of how well they can remember, for example, the provisions of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, how well they remember those is really nothing much to do with the kinds of jobs they're able to do, so that we confuse the socializing purpose of the school, that is, to allot children to different kinds of jobs and roles, and the academic purposes of schools, which have to do with shaping the mind to be able to uh, understand the world and its wonders better. So the, the image of the, the, the cinema determining salaries is supposed to be obviously absurd, but to bring out something that we don't recognize as absurd about the school as it currently is. I think we too readily accept institutions as, they, as, they, you know, as we get to know them, and we fail to take into account um, what might be absurd about some of the institutions that we're a part of. So the idea here is that it, the ideas that we hold about education are very significant in terms of how they inform both what we structure and the results that we get. And if I've read you correctly, that there, there are some fairly deep ideas here that transcend traditionalists or progressives and would cause us to, to think at an even deeper level about what actually takes place in education. So you say that education is a contentious and an unsatisfactory activity. Do you want to start there? <laughs> well, the book starts with the suggestion that uh, education, in one sense, is quite a convenient area to be involved in because there's only three ideas. Uh, one idea is that we socialize kids. We make them fit into the adults around them, and we recognize success in education by the degree to which they fit in and look like the adults around them. They share certain values and beliefs and a knowledge base that has a utility. So anything that we justify doing to children in the name of social utility is what we call socializing. The second idea is Plato's. Plato believes that uh, a well-socialized person was utterly contemptible. And the purpose of having a mind was that you could use it to discover the truth about reality. And it's become what we call the academic enterprise. So today, we still teach children in schools a lot of things that are utterly irrelevant for their social life. 
but at the same time we teach them because we think they're good to know. They're good for the mind. And then the third idea is largely associated with that strange Frenchman, Jean-Jacques, well, Swiss, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, who believed that the mind was a bit like the body, that as um, bodies go through a regular sequence of changes as we age, uh, almost regardless of the food that we eat, you'd believe the mind was rather similar, that the mind goes through regular stages of development naturally, and uh, the trick of education is to, is to recognize, to understand the stages of development we go through, the kinds of learning that we engage in, and by knowing as much as we can about the child then, we are able to best educate the person to develop their potentials as fully as possible. Now, Rousseau's, I think, are the ideas that have been taken over very largely today. The problem with those three ideas, I think, is that they're mutually incompatible in ways that we don't recognize very readily. They're the three ideas that shape nearly all education institutions. If you look at the mission statement of almost any education institution, it will claim to be in the business of turning out good citizens, uh, in the business of uh, uh, creating academic excellence, and in the business of developing the individual potential of each child. There are inbuilt incompatibilities to achieving these three separate aims. And the cinema example is intended to try to bring out the incompatibility between the socializing purpose of the schools and the academic purposes, that they have fundamental levels in which they're uh, incompatible and makes the activity of educating difficult. It's an attempt to explain why education is hard to do, why we argue so much about our schools, uh, and why those arguments don't get resolved. Uh, I think it's because we don't recognize that, that our concept of education is made up of these three somewhat incompatible ideas. So you use a lot of analogies in the book, and then you're also very careful to say, we can't uh -huh. take this too far. But, but one that I felt was really powerful in this regard was the analogy of the uses of a dam, that there can be multiple uses of a dam that are actually in conflict with each other, and that that's one way of thinking about education. Yes, yes, and, and you know, I, can't <laughs> I think it was taken from Andrew Roy, as I remember. Uh, it was about how dams can be used to store water, they can be used for irrigation, they can be used for another purpose. The trouble is that if you, if you try to build them to do all of these three purposes, they simply interrupt each other, they get in the way of each other. But if you use it for irrigation, it's no longer storing the water, etc., etc. Uh, and Roy, I think, uses that image to show why a lot of the huge dam projects in India uh, and earlier, you know, 30, 40 years ago, were a, a total dead loss, massive expenditures of money. Uh, for they were using up more, oh, also to generate power, and they were using up more power uh, than in fact they were able to, uh, than they took to keep the damn things going. So, but it's even deeper than that because you're also saying it's not just that these three goals are incompatible together, it's that they each have their own inherent problems. So you have this kind of complicated yes. mess of three purposes, but even that, that don't, uh, don't complement each other necessarily. But then each of those purposes has its own difficulties. Right. And the socializing one, you can see the, the extremely well-socialized person, of course, is you know, Hitler Youth. I mean, that, that is, it's, it's the, uh, the fitting somebody so well to a social system that they are so conventionalized to that system they cannot imagine alternatives. So they think of their system, their society, their country, as, as all countries tend to do. They were good, the school system is good at this, persuading them that this is the best country in the world and all the others are inferior to the degree to which they're unlike us. Uh, we, we tend to do that about ourselves individually as well somewhat. But, there's, but that particular socializing purpose uh, is, is not one that goes very well with the academic aims of the school. And of course with the academic aims, you, if you focus on that exclusively, you get in Montaigne's lovely phrase, you get asses loaded with books. And the, 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 as I think Whitehead has this notion that the well-informed man is the greatest bore on God's earth. But somehow learning a great deal of knowledge in the academic sense doesn't turn out a good person. 
And with the Rousseauian notion, the sense that if you spend your time developing the individual and the individual's potentials, that the problem side of that is found in, I think it's uh, kind of Clark's phrase that you get uh, people who are as ignorant as swans, but as, you know, they're, they're, they're delightfully uh, adept at dealing with their world and society, but they know nothing, you know, nothing that, that matters about uh, the complexities of human life and experience and history. Well, you also quote an Aboriginal complaint from Western Canada that, that they were taught to read and that made mm -hmm. them stupid. <laughs> well, we, we tend to forget, we tend to think that literacy indeed is one of the great gifts, one of the great inventions of humankind, but we forget it comes at a cost. And for many kids, I fear the cost of gaining a little bit of literacy is catastrophic for the rest of their lives. Um, and we tend to forget, you know, in oral cultures, um, there was a kind of richness of experience that that we have lost uh, at the for the gain of literacy. Uh, we needn't lose as much as we do, but I think we have um, because we tend to be insensitive to the losses, the costs of literacy. Uh, we tend not to be very good at. Um, thinking about how we can minimize those in the process of education. Because we tend to think every gain in literacy is a gain in education, but it isn't. So you talk about socialization, and I should mention that in each, for each purpose, you give good news, bad news, very bad news, and really bad news. Uh, when you talk <laughs> about uh, Plato's academic idea, is, is that sort of the traditionalist, is that what we would call traditionalist educators? Yes, I think that was fairly, yeah, um, the notion that somehow what, the knowledge, uh, and I think there are great values to this idea, uh, which we tend to have given up on. We tend to think of the mind as a psychological organ that develops in particular ways, but we forget Plato's image of the mind as one that is shaped and made up of the knowledge that it learns. That is, our, uh, our understanding uh, is a product of the learning that we engage in. Our mind is, is shaped by that. It's not as though there's some independent uh, developmental process we go through. So there are, these are competing, competing views of the mind that we try to blend together by ignoring some of the significant features. So then the Rousseau's developmental idea would be pretty much the foundation for a lot of progressive thought about education? Yes, yeah, uh, and there's some, you know, the whole child-centeredness stuff, but, and all that is about that the more you know about children, about their learning, their development, their motivation, etc., the better able we are to teach them. I think there's a, we've had now 150 years of that assumption and people trying to show how the more we learn about children, the better we're able we are to teach them. It's not, at the very least, people should be willing to acknowledge that it's not so obviously true and that the results are not so obvious. Uh, it's not clear that we're massively better able to teach as a result of all these, uh, this huge industry of educational research that has been going on now for more than 100 years. Uh, and I think because it, it has built into it these complex, these these confusions that are tied in with not recognizing the difference between socializing, academic, and uh, developmental purposes in education. But that's another uh, story. That's another part of the book, I guess. Well, in the more. chat, the audience is actually rewriting your book. They're, they're writing it again. Uh, they're talking about oh. pedaling the bike faster but in the wrong direction. You say something fairly similar in the I book. Was. But what I think you're saying is right. that this is not a matter of balancing. We typically have looked at these different views of education right. and we've said, okay, if they balance each other in the way that government uh, bodies balance each other, then ultimately the compromise produces the best solution. And, and what I hear you saying is that's actually not true. Yeah. But the, the traditional ideas we've had, these three ideas, just aren't hacking it for us. We need a different way of thinking about education. We need to give up on the notion that somehow each of these bad ideas, not bad too strongly, each of these ideas is assumed to be able to 
mitigate the problems, the worst problems of each of the others. So if we put all three of them together, we won't, for example, get excessively socialized people, and we won't get these asses loaded by, with books, because each of the ideas and the Rousseauian one, they will all somehow uh, mitigate the problems of the others. Uh, alas, it doesn't work that way. Three bad ideas doesn't make a good idea. Although. So what? The rest right. of Although the to do justice what? to what you've written, which is a, a very dense and thoughtful book, you do show the positives. Like you talk about the fact that the developmental idea actually uh, released us from blaming the student all of the time for not learning. Right. So you're recognizing the positive, but you're saying yes. that it, as a whole, this just isn't taking us where we want to go. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. Now, each of the ideas has an obvious huge virtues. Um, we rely, I mean, who could have an, who could imagine an education that doesn't socialize children adequately, or imagine an, a, a kind of education that doesn't have an academic component. The problem is the way these ideas are framed and the way they drive our thinking about education. We do what we do because of the ideas we hold. And if our ideas are confused, we will get confusing practice. And I think what we are at the moment asking our teachers to do is implement a conception of education that just isn't viable. And this causes distress, burnout, problems, difficulties. It, look, the, the world is wonderful. It's not. It shouldn't be that difficult to explain to children, to show children what's wonderful about it. So what the work we've been trying to do, obviously, is show a different way of conceiving education that allows us to explore its wonders and engage the imagination of children. Um, anyway, that's the, <laughs> the, the main purpose of the book, and, and it's tied into some of the other books I've written that are about developing children's imagination. Well, I definitely want to let you tell that story. We, we've, uh, on the show we've interviewed, we interviewed Vicky Bellis, who's the director of a, a movie called Race to Nowhere. And one of the interesting pieces that I thought Vicky brought to the dialogue was a recognition that the issues that are apparent in schools are not actually isolated to schools. They are a part of a larger cultural issue of imbalance in life or a misunderstanding of certain things. Do you see the same kind of parallel as you look at our inability to think about education and as it relates to maybe how adults lead their lives in the work world? Uh, Do you not have to agree? I think, uh, no, uh, well, no, I think there's a, obviously, I would want to say something like that. It's not something I've tried to work out in any detail. Um, I did do a book called The Educated Mind that, uh, that does explore some features of that. But, but I, I'm less confident in my ability <laughs> to prescribe for society at large. And I feel a little happier in trying to talk a little bit, you know, about some of the problems uh, that uh, we have with schooling. Well, part of what I really liked about your approach was that it very specifically doesn't lead to pointing fingers, which feels to me like it's a fair amount of the educational uh -huh. dialogue right now is it's the teacher's fault or it's the union's fault or it's the administrator's fault. Right. Yeah, and I think, as I probably say somewhere, that it's... Uh, the, the usual suspects should be all <laughs> forgiven because everybody's trying very hard to do you know, as best a job as they can. And I must admit, I find uh, most of the, say, educational administrators I know, I just think that they're heroic what they are trying to pull off because it's, it is difficult dealing with incompatible aims. And that's what they have to do with every day. Parents want one thing, some parents want one thing, some parents want the other, uh, educational experts, uh, constantly telling them, you know, what the, the research has recently shown, uh, which is usually nonsense anyway, but, but somehow their job is to bring all this stuff together and nevertheless keep the ship going in the right direction. And the trouble is, of course, that there isn't obviously a right direction to go in. So there's a... My metaphors are getting out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> but your use of imagery is very helpful in the book, at least it was to me. So what the, the, it, I think it might be valuable to kind of talk about the structure of the book, because what you're doing is you're sort of fictionalizing the uh, look at our current educational system from, from an educational historian in the future. Yes. Yes, mainly. I mean, the, the latter, well, two-thirds of the book, I guess, is, it announces itself as a 
the history of education from 2010 to 2060. Um, now, it also says that this is just a patently a silly device to describe how the idea that I uh, develop as an alternative to the three ideas that currently dominate educational thinking could, in fact, be put into practice. And, uh, you know, I could have done that, you know, sort of arguing, you know, having chapters on teaching practice, what schools might look like, etc. But it just seemed like a, a more fun way of writing it and possibly reading it, I hoped, to have it as this historian on Sirius 5 and uh, a few hundred years in the future uh, writing a thesis about uh, why the schools changed so radically by 2060, even though they had survived since the middle of the 19th century in very much the same form until the... Um, and then you begin to see these big changes in the earlier part of the 21st century, from 2010 onwards. So will you tell us what it means uh, when you say, to tell us what cognitive tools are and the vision of accumulating cognitive tools? Uh -huh. ah, okay, um, I mean, in some ways I've pinched some of the language from Vygotsky. Um, and, you know, we, we have those three different notions I mentioned earlier of education, the socializing, the academic notion, the uh, Rousseauian developmental notion. Uh, Vygotsky has a slightly different way of accounting for the development of you know, higher intellectual functions uh, and the mind generally. And he tends to see it as made up of uh, toolkits. I, I sometimes use an example talking with teachers about, uh, I asked them to imagine there are the plains of Africa 75,000 years ago. And, uh, and ahead of them, it's very hot, and ahead of them there is a, a thorn tree. And the thorn tree is covered with skins and twigs and other rest creating a rather nice, large, shaded area. And as you go into the shaded area under the thorn tree, you realize there's a small tribe that lives in there. And at the back, there's a man snoring gently on the, the, the nicest uh, furs, and uh, he's clearly held in high regard by the tribe. And he's held in high regard because uh, about uh, a dozen years ago, he invented the past tense. And, uh, and you know, everybody's using it now. It's a better way to be able to refer to your experience. You can elaborate it better. And other tribes are picking it up, and your tribe is getting a lot of kudos. Anyway, as you talk to the people in the uh, tent, as it were, the, under the thorn tree, uh, you begin to learn that uh, it was not him but his twin daughters who invented the past tense when they were quite young, and he's been taking the credit ever since. And the daughters are now in early adulthood, and they have a much better sense of intellectual property rights, and they're planning a launch of the subjunctive in a few years' time. Uh, now, somebody invented the past tense, somebody invented the subjunctive. Uh, what we do as we learn a language is we pick up these tools, the subjunctive, the past tense, and a whole bunch of other things, of course. And what I've been exploring, following on the sort of Vygotskyan notion, that what you get uh, with different uh, elaborations of language are toolkits for sense-making. And the more elaborate toolkits you get, you get first a body, which has a toolkit for sense-making. You then uh, get an oral language, and that comes with a toolkit. Like, and, and some of the cognitive tools that you get with an oral language involve things like storytelling, metaphor, uh, the ability to form images in the mind from words, uh, and the string of others, a sense of mystery, a sense of uh, puzzles, all these things, and the story structure very prominently. Um, and then when you get uh, to become literate, you get a whole new toolkit. It's not that you just become uh, able to handle this coding, decoding stuff, but literacy, as Walter Ong puts it, is a technology that transforms thought. And the way it transforms thought, if you do literacy well in the Western tradition, is that it gives you a whole new toolkit. It gives you a, a new way of conceiving re of reality. You pick up an interest in the, and a fascination with the extremes of reality first. You need to know you know, things like who is the biggest, the fastest, the hairiest. That is, you orient yourself to the real world that you find yourself among by first learning about its extremes and limits, which is why I think the Guinness Book of Records is one of the best sellers to 11-year-olds in the galaxy. Um, and you also make associations with um, uh, heroes, heroines, because they were the ones that help you overcome the threats that you feel hemmed in by. Um, and there's, and there's a, a bunch of other cognitive. So, so what happens, what I'm trying to give a picture of education as a process of maximizing each child's uh, toolkit that is available in their culture. 
and I've been focusing particularly on languages, different forms of language development. After the after literacy, we learn a theoretic language, and then we learn a sense of irony. All of these deliver to us uh, cognitive tools that help us to make better sense of the world that we're a part of. And what I try to do is describe education as the process of picking up as many of these tools as possible, as fully as possible, because that maximizes, again, our So does your learning in-depth <laughs> program, is that intended to drive at this, the acquisition of these cognitive tools? Uh, well, <laughs> the trouble is with writing about the future is you've got to invent particular things that are going to go on in the school in the future. So I had to invent a whole series of potential programs. Learning in depth was one of them. And for those who have no idea what it is, um, this is a slightly, to some, bizarre um, suggestion. But the idea is that when children start school, uh, you have a ceremony, and each child is a lot of a topic, like apples, beetles, birds, uh, the railways, etc. Uh, and then for the next 12 years of their schooling, they build a topic. Uh, sorry, they build a portfolio on that topic. So by the end of schooling, every child will know as much as almost anybody on earth about something. Uh, it's one of the, it, it actually grew out of the claim that we had to do a much better job of developing the student's imagination because that is crucial to their ability to flexibly learn about the world around them. And one of the things about imagination is that, uh, contrary to the sort of rather sloppy notions of imagination we have at the moment, is that uh, the imagination can work only with what you know. It can't work with what's on the internet. It can't work with what's on the library. It requires you to know stuff. And the more you know, the richer you're in, you can imagine about it. So the trick was to get kids, because as, as you know at the moment, when children leave school, you know, what they remember, what they know of the curriculum that we've been teaching them for 12 years is pitifully little. Now, there are all kinds of excuses for this, why we achieve so little in terms of getting kids to remember stuff. And there are endless ways in which we abnegate responsibility for what we then have been doing to children for 12 years, that is, teaching them about the fact that they should be able to prove that alternate interior angles of a parallelogram are congruent. Uh, you know, what 25-year-old do you know can actually prove that? Um, so I've been trying to show that this kind of knowledge is crucial for the development of the imagination. And so the, the Learning Adept program grew out of, oddly perhaps, the development of kids' imaginations to be able to, and, and to show that the more they knew about something, the more imaginative they could become. And then that, that ability transferred to other things that they would be dealing with in school. And so we've started, the, the Learning Adept program is only now three years old. Some teachers, having heard about it, tried it out, two teachers. So in 2008, 2009, we had 30 kids uh, doing building portfolios. Uh, 2009, 2010, there were 2,000 kids. Now there are, I've lost count, um, many thousands of kids in Iran, Hungary, Romania, England, South Africa, South, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the US, and a number of other countries. So it, it's, it seems like such a stupid project in some ways, but the teachers who have started it have been astonished by the degree of interest that the kids have shown and the commitment that they show to their topics. It seems to have impacts out of all proportion. Uh, one woman in one of the schools three years ago, I think her fellow teachers thought she was nuts. You know, why would anyone try something as crazy as this? It's more work. Why would you? It doesn't make any sense anyway. Um, uh, the second year, six teachers in that school started it. This year, there are 10 teachers because they have seen the impact on the kids. It's been quite stunning. So that was you know, just one of the programs that came out of the attempt to invent futures for education that were a bit different. I'm looking in the chat and noticing that I'm not the only one who is disappointed that your Learning in Depth book got pushed back to, to 2011. Because at one place on the oh. website, it says it was going to come out in the summer of 2010. Yes. And I was, like many others, I think, desperately looking for it. Uh, Right. Well, apparently, that's all, I shouldn't go on about this, but apparently the guy, it had, it's going to be jointly published by uh, University of Chicago Press in the US, and then the Althouse Press in Canada, and there was going to be another publisher in England. And the English publisher 
they ran into financial problems and he was trying to get out of them. I mean, it's long, it's awful stories about publishing. And of course, Chicago were waiting to hear the number of copies they should print. And because this dragged on and on, and then they dropped out in England, so we need another publisher there. So they put back publication till I think it's either February or even March now. So do you want to put uh, future education in the context of the body of work you've written? Um, I think there are over 20 books. I know, depressing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I've had nothing else to do, I think, is the problem. Um, I think I start, well, oddly enough, um, I started the first book I really wrote, you know, serious book was called uh, Educational Development. And it came out in 1979 uh, from Oxford University Press in New York. And it was a basic sketch of this theory of um, developing kinds of understanding. And it mentioned uh, what I call mythic, romantic, philosophic, and ironic kinds of understanding. We've since added the somatic one. Um, and, and then I started getting caught up with all kinds of issues about educational research. And, and, and I was interested in why it, didn't, why it wasn't working. And I found the kinds of educational research that I most found useful in doing my work was things, reading things like Archie comics. Um, because I was fascinated by, you know, why is my daughter at 11, you know, reading Archie comics with such passion? And why does she want to be a pirate? And so it was all, and you know, why do the kids, the boys collect hockey cards and with such enthusiasm? That is a lot of the stuff that you just don't find anything much about in educational textbooks. Um, why do they all have hobbies? Why do they collect things? Um, and when I looked in educational literature for something about collecting, the collecting instinct, I, I found a, the last really interesting essay was by a woman called Carolyn Freer Burke that appeared in 1907 in California. So the, the stuff <coughs> that I thought was really useful uh, about children and their development, how they made sense of the world, seemed to be evading uh, people doing regular education research. Now, I'm sure the problems are mine. I don't understand them. <coughs> But because I was interested in that, I started writing about difficulties with education research. And, uh, and then I moved on to developing these ideas that had started in educational development. I wrote a book called Primary Understanding, and then one called Romantic Understanding. And I was going to write two more on philosophic understanding and ironic. And I thought, oh, this is <coughs> too tedious. Um, so I wrote a single book called The Educated Mind. And that did quite well. Um, it's been translated now into about uh, seven or eight languages and a few more translations coming out. Um, and, um, and then these later books have been an attempt to push those ideas a bit further. And then the, I, I've also got a research group called the Imaginative Education Research Group. And somehow the book on the future of education grew out of a lot of the practical work we've been trying to do in schools. So as you know, most of the latter part of the future education is about how can this work in practice? What, what, what does the teacher training program look like for people who want to develop teachers' imaginations in ways that enable them to teach that alternate interior angles are congruent in a really exciting way? Because it is exciting. Every, one of the principles is that everything is wonderful. And the problem for a lot of schooling and for many children is that they don't get a sense of that wonder. So, what we've been trying to work at in our research group and then in the future of education was to try to show how you can make um, everyday teaching of everyday subjects uh, infused with wonder for children. So there was a mention in the chat earlier about the PISA testing uh, results that came out today. I'm not even sure I'm saying that correctly, but the, the you know the, the international test that, that rank countries. I'm sure you get asked about right. that a lot, and maybe about Finland and Singapore. H how do you respond to people who would who point uh -huh. to that and say, okay, we're not doing a very good job, say in the United States or in North America, and but they're doing a really good job in Finland or Singapore. <laughs> well, they're doing. A relatively <laughs> good job, and, and the trouble is, you know, look at what what is tested in those things. And if you want to, it would be very easy if you wanted to set up a school that got the kids doing superbly well. I'm actually giving this talk <clears throat> from a school I've been giving a workshop in today. Uh, it's a private school, very wealthy, very wealthy neighbourhood, 
that the kids in the school do superbly well. In fact, the workshop was supposed to be on how do you, how do you make meaningful and, and imaginatively engaging the task of teaching kids have the five-paragraph essay. Now, these teachers are superb at teaching the five-paragraph essay. What they're not superb about is finding it interesting themselves, or indeed finding getting the kids interested. You can always make, you can, if you have a finite goal, which is what you can see that these tests measure, it's not difficult to put a huge amount of energy into training kids to do that, particularly if you have the kind of state and system that allows you to um, drive the educational system and teaching practice and build the whole set together, as they do in Singapore. I've been to Singapore many times, very impressed by a lot of the excellent teaching. But a great deal of what is done in those schools is dreary beyond belief. And, but it produces good results on those tests. This is not an educational triumph. This is a, a triumph of a kind. But it's not one, I think, that we should be seeking to emulate particularly. So one of the things that I've consistently wondered about through the series is the impact of the internet on our willingness to rethink large institutions. It feels as though the internet is a um, uh, often a disruptive influence. And are you seeing a moment in time here with mm. education where our conception of what knowledge is is being called into question in ways that would allow us to think more deeply about the future of education? Um, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, you know, I read lots of stuff about the internet. I must confess I find most of it drivel. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think these technologies, they have potentials for doing certain kinds of things. And, um, you know, if one was to be generous, one would say, well, we haven't, we haven't really yet adequately exploited the possibilities of the internet. And maybe in the future we'll have all kinds of things happening. My suspicion, what do I know? I just don't know. My sense of the future of education, as you will have seen, is that the internet will play a smaller and smaller role. Education, and Michael Oakeshott has this nice image, education is a, a conversation among generations. But crucial to education is the conversation. And, and there are ways we can use, as we're doing now, use the internet for conversations of a kind and with people. Otherwise, it would be impossible. But that face-to-face -face conversation is, is going to be always crucial to education, I think. But I, what do I know? I don't, I, I, nobody knows what the future is. The only thing you can say securely about the future is that every prediction is going to be falsified. So avoid, <laughs> avoid making okay. it. So this is when we sort of typically shift to Q&A. Um, I know Deb has a question. I'm going to let her ask the first one. If you have a question for Kieran, you can raise your hand by using the hand with the green up arrow. That, that raises your hand. It looks like someone has there. Uh, at the same time, uh, we, you can also put a question in the chat. So I'm looking for Ryan. I'm going to give you the microphone. And go ahead and click on the larger microphone button. And while you're doing that, I'm going to queue uh, up Deborah's question. Ryan, I see that your mic is on, but we're can not hearing me? you. Oh, yeah, apparently. But so speak up a little, and we can hear you. Okay. So, um, in a couple of your books I've read, you've had this. Uh, you've talked about this idea about how, um, like, the nature, your, your ideas on the nature of knowledge and how they, how uh, knowledge isn't in books and and things like that. Clipper, it seems like you haven't really expanded on that idea very much. It always seems kind of, uh, you know, vague to me. I was wondering if you might be able to just expand oh. your idea about the nature of knowledge a little bit. All right. Well, I mean, the it's it's one of the topics I quite enjoy, indeed, to be talking about today with the teachers that try to persuade them that there is no knowledge in books, there is no knowledge in the library, there's no knowledge in the internet. What we have in these places are codes. What we have in books are a code that somebody has invented as a way of trying to express uh, knowledge. Um, but the only source of knowledge is the human mind. One of the problems I think we have in education is simply not recognizing the difference between the codes and knowledge. And consequently, what we tend to accept often as satisfactory is the ability of children to repeat the codes. And they can re so we disproportionately reward children 
who are good at remembering and repeating certain kinds of codes. <coughs> now, it doesn't mean they aren't repeating the knowledge for themselves. It just means that we, we reward people who can do something that could be meaningless. It could be meaningful, but it could be meaningless. <coughs> now, sorry, I've got something in my throat. Um, one of the um, things that I think is very important to recognize is the difference between the code and the knowledge. And when we don't recognize it in education, we accept the codes in place of true knowledge. What we have to do, what the teacher has to do, is a magical task of resuscitating the knowledge from the code. Uh, again, if we don't recognize the difference, who's going to be trying to do it? So a lot of what goes on in classrooms is more about uh, getting children to replicate codes and repeat them than it is to seek the meaning that underlies them and revivify, bring back to life in another mind and the material that has been coded into the written form. And, and somehow it seems to me very important to recognize the difference because if we don't, then we can fail to make what seems to me a very important recognition of what we should be doing for children. Maybe, is that still unclear? So there's a question in the chat about copying the chat log, or Scott saying he's copying it. If you want to copy the chat log, just go up to File, Save, <laughs> Chat Conversation, you can copy it. You can also, when you're hearing the recording, do the same thing. And the full Illuminate recording uh, allows you to do that. So I'm giving J.S. Giddings the microphone. Again, J.S., there you go. So I see that your microphone is on, but I'm not, we're not hearing anything, so maybe your microphone hasn't been configured. Go ahead and turn your microphone off and go up to Tools, Audio, and the Audio Setup Wizard. While you're doing that, I'm going to ask two questions that were in the chat. Deb and Scott Merrick ask, how did you get so interested in this topic that you made a lifetime of writing books about it? What was your own elementary experience? <laughs> well, it hasn't been a lifetime. It's just every now and then I wrote a page. <laughs> you write a page a day, you've got a book in a year. I did a lot of other things. I <laughs> children and grandchildren. Um, um, I think uh, my own experience of school was mostly being bored uh, and just puzzled. I couldn't work out why people were doing this to me a lot of the time, uh, which meant that I, I, I did all right, I suppose, in school, but I, I, I really had difficulty understanding what it was all about. And I got a job when I left school, after college. I worked in a rather peculiar um, research organization. And, um, and I was given the job of trying to describe uh, a different way of teaching history to children. And it became clear to me, I mean, it's the simplest thing. I mean, everybody recognizes that what I was interested about was Oh, oh, have you asked me? So that was J.S. Giddings testing mic, and I think ah, it, J.S. that's it working, but I've turned your mic okay. off, and we'll turn it back on when we're done here. Okay, thanks. Um, so I, I realized that at age seven, what interested me about history was quite different from what interested me when I was 15 and what interested me when I was 25. And the, so what I started to do was try to tease out what those differences were, and that then led to this you know, theory that appeared first in the educated and educational development, and then in the educated mind later, that simply tried to. And I suppose you know these things are you know it's all autobiography, as my wife would say. She's written three books about autobiography. Just trying to work out why, um, uh, what was it that made made it difficult for me at school to find real meaning and interest in the world. Because outside of school, I was fascinated by all kinds of things. Um, and then it became a matter of um, then, when I sort of had to get a job, <laughs> it seemed like a good idea to <clears throat> try to, uh, you know, and people willing to pay me to sit down and try and write this out at greater length and then work with children in schools and teachers and all the rest of it. So it did sort of grew up like that. But it did grow out of just a puzzlement of why people were doing things to me in the name of something they called education, which would seem to be going on as far as I could see rather better outside of school than it was going inside school. And that may be, you know, either fortunate or unfortunate in the experience I started from. So J.S. Giddings, I think your mic will record. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. I was curious as to why we're not seeing the beginning of this movement of change in education. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, and all I see us doing uh, is pedaling the bike faster. We're teaching for the test, and we're attempting to get the students ready in a better manner by working faster with the same old methods. When is this change going to come, and what can we do to help effectuate it? If I knew that, um, I, I don't, it puzzles me a little. Um, the book, the, the Future of Education, gives us till about 2015 to 2020, in which the current ideas about education will still be sustained. There are a number of problems with current schooling, and I think, I think it has to get even worse, I'm afraid, before it'll get better. Uh, because a lot of people, if you say there's something wrong with education, they will become outraged and say, we do a super job, we turn the kids out, we sustain the society and its uh, you know, technological culture quite well, forgetting how many people have to be brought into uh, some of our countries from elsewhere to be able to sustain it. But, and so firstly, you have to persuade people that it isn't as good as it could be, and indeed it can be considered to be really quite bad. Um, and I think that will happen when there are two or three things. One, the, the public school in the States particularly got traction under the claim that it was going to produce uh, equality of opportunity, that it was going to do something for the poor. It has patently not done that, and indeed it's probably exacerbated the differences between the poor and the rich. Um, and sometimes I try to point out that um, the invention of the public school, uh, there was greater mobility among classes before the public schools were founded than there has been since. This is heresy for a lot of people who are dedicated to the school as one of the great agencies of democracy. Uh, it is not doing that well. There's just so long you can promise uh, to do something for the working classes, for example, uh, which I guess are now called the middle classes as well, but the working class has been betrayed by the public school. And I think that is going to reach a proportion uh, of obviousness that there's going to be serious disruption. Um, I think the other side of it that the book suggests is that they're going to, you know, we're going to face the, um, ecological crises and other crises. And the public school has been assumed to be something that can help deal with social problems. Uh, it's never been terribly good doing that. And I think it, we are in for, again, patent uh, failures of the school to meet some of those challenges because they are still stuck with these three ideas. And to me, uh, you know, it seems ridiculous. People look for great social movements and all kinds of things. But I think fundamentally our problems are theoretical ones. It's the theory that we have got wrong. Not a popular, <laughs> not an easy sell these days, because people aren't, you know, they think of educational theory as a bunch of crap, which is why philosophy of education is no longer considered uh, useful in the ac academy, even in North America. Um, and people who promise to be able to improve teaching, you know, the 25 ways to teach social studies better, this sort of stuff, and the promises of educational psychology to give us methods that will allow us to teach better. All these things, uh, are making promises that uh, are patently not being kept. And I think that patentness will become evident to everybody within the next five, ten years. And I think then the possibility for change occurs. And you know, my answer, of course, is that everybody starts picking up on the kinds of ideas I've been peddling. But I think everybody, everybody does that. Um, but I do think, sorry, you were going to say. No, I was going to wait for you to finish. I finished. Okay. Okay. So, well, I've, I'm smiling to myself because one of the quotes I pulled out of the book to put in my own quote list was uh, from Charles Beard, who said, "The power which a concept yield, wields over human life is nicely proportioned to the degree of error in it." <laughs> and, and so I hear you sort of saying, "I kind of hope in five years we'll reach this crisis," but I, but I can also hear, and I'm seeing Ryan in the chat, you know, what uh, is it not possible? We'll just keep going. Yeah, maybe. And we have kept going. Look, nearly all the modern ideas about education, I, I did write a, an earlier book called Getting It Wrong from the Beginning, have been articulated very well by Herbert Spencer. I think people don't recognize in North America just how far Herbert Spencer is responsible for the shape of the public school and the curriculum in North America. Everybody talks about John Dewey in North America, but Herbert Spencer, I think, 
has had a much more profound impact. Oh, that, I know some people who are listening will be outraged at this. <laughs> but then, uh, so Spencer, I think, goes, because all these principles that Spencer articulated are so much a part of the, the presuppositions of teachers particularly. You start with the simple motion of the complex, you know, all this sort of stuff, and, and his notions of, um, you know, what's important, what the stuff is most important to learn, etc., that shaped the, the, the big curriculum uh, committees in the early parts of the 20th century in North America that gave us much of the kind of curriculum we have today. And anyway, who knows? Yeah. We've got a couple of minutes left. Um, Chris B. asks, what did you learn about building your Zen garden that has most influenced your thinking about the future of education? <laughs> uh, nothing. <laughs> well, I think, um, I think one of the phrases I use in the Zen garden book is uh, a stone upon a stone and a word upon a word. And one of the things that came out of it that is a part of another project that uh, appears very briefly in the future of education book is what I call whole school projects. That the school should take on a three-year project every now and then, and everybody in the school should be involved in it. Uh, and one of the things you learn from that is that big things can be achieved by taking small steps. And I think we, most people, most kids in schools are not persuaded that they can do large things, large-scale things, and take pride in uh, involving themselves in something big. And I think uh, that's one of the things that came out of the Vance Zen Garden. It was not, it's not a big garden, but it's not the kind of thing that I normally would be knocking off on my weekends. But it was, became a lovely project, and this idea of a stone upon a stone and a, a word upon a word is what produces big books and big gardens and all the rest of it, big changes. Very fun. Okay, we probably have time for one more question. If you put a question in the chat and I've missed it, please post it again. Or feel free to raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow. Ryan asks, when will Kieran come out with a book that further investigates his ideas on the somatic toolkit? Ah, well, I'm, I, I have, I hope to be revising The Educated Mind in the next couple of years and making that into a much bigger book and it will have a much enlarged section on somatic understanding which indeed is, is clearly one of the wholly inadequate parts of that book but that's certainly on the tool on the, on the, on the desk for working on. And, and Ash was, was disappointed to know that was maybe the last question so we'll sneak this one in. Don't corporations have a need to advance their knowledge workers just as societies do. Sure, <laughs> um, but, uh, but uh, I mean they're in the business of making money. Uh, we have a we have a system that's supposed to be advancing our knowledge, and that's the school. And it should set us up so that for the rest of our lives we are self-sufficient in doing that. And that's what the Learning in Depth project is supposed to do as well. Okay, Karen, thank you so much for coming on tonight. What a what a pleasure and a privilege. Oh, by my pleasure. Thank you very much. It's really fascinating. I'll be watching other people. <laughs> it's kind of hard if you've never been in this environment. The, the chat goes and it's easy to get distracted and you didn't. You were very good about staying on task and I know that can be difficult. I want to thank you for coming on. Thank Learn Central Illuminate for, for employing me and allowing me to run the series. Uh -huh. uh, don't miss coming up uh, Thursday, Julie Young on Florida Virtual School. Then next week, Deborah Meyer and Alfie Cohn. Hopefully on the 21st, Karen Cater. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming. Thanks, Karen, for, for making the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Okay, thanks so much. So you're welcome to turn your webcam off. We'd like to, to allow you to get out of Dodge right away because we feel like okay. you've committed an hour and that's your time. So please feel oh, free to go. You. Some of us will stick around and chat a little. Uh, okay. Those of you who yeah, like to stick around. Apparently I have to go off to the opera. My wife gave me strict instructions. I had to be out of here fast. Good for <laughs> so you. Well, you. We hope we got you out on time. Thank you thank again. Thank you indeed. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was just fascinating. Uh, really felt like I stretched um, my own understandings and thoughts about education. I really appreciated this model of the three purposes and how they not only are in conflict with each other, but they in and of themselves have their own inherent problems. Now, I, Dev, I am not writing a book because I know the limits of my understanding. I'm much better at 
asking other people questions than being the expert. But thank you so much for coming. <laughs> one page a day. I think there. I think I may not be the only one who perked up at that. Uh, yeah. When when uh, learning in depth comes out, I will definitely invite Karen to come back. Uh, I was personally um, disappointed that that book wasn't out yet because I was fascinated by the idea. So thank you so much for coming tonight. As you all know, the you have to exit the session for the recording to process. Um, thanks, Ash, for asking a question. Those of you who did ask questions, thanks, Ryan. Um, we will hopefully see some of you in the future. Again, Thursday is Julie Young. Next week is sort of a blockbuster week. Although, yeah, so where will this be archived? It will be at futureofeducation.com. And you can click through to the recordings page. And there's also an MP3 um, iTunes feed. Take care, everybody. Have a great night. Good night.